The scripture reading today comes from Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You may have heard the story several weeks ago about the woman who was burned at the Golden Corral uh, just off of Normandy Boulevard here in Jacksonville. She was working uh, behind the dessert counter. It was 5 p.m., the restaurant was packed. And uh, a man walked in, doused her with flammable liquid, and lit her on fire. Walks out of the Golden Corral, sits on the curb, and waits for the police to come and arrest him. Over 70 to 80% of her body was burned. She was transported to the Shands Burn Unit in Gainesville, which last I heard, she's still there in an induced coma recovering. She was a graduate of City Rescue Mission. She attended Christ Church in town, which is one of our daughter congregations. And uh, Dave Abney, who, who pastors that congregation, uh, his wife Haley had been regularly meeting with her to disciple her. And uh, Dave texted me shortly after the news came out. And he said, please pray for us. Sin stinks and evil is real. Now, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to such a horrific act of evil? a horrific act of injustice. How do you not lose heart when something like that happens? Jesus tells this parable to his disciples who are and will continue to face suffering and injustice and persecution as Jesus makes his way to the cross and beyond. And so he's answering the question for them. In the midst of what they're seeing, awful acts of evil, injustice, persecution, he's answering the question and he, and he raises it in verse one. How do you not lose heart in the face of that? And it broadens out for us this morning, for those of you here, maybe in the midst of an act of injustice, 
or maybe just in the midst of life is hard. Life is broken. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so Jesus tells this parable to answer the question, how do you not lose heart? The word means to become discouraged, despondent. In the face of the hardness of life. First, he says, you need to remember God's character. In this parable, Jesus tells or or teaches by way of contrast. What do we know of this unrighteous judge that Jesus tells us about? Well, verse two, it says, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, what do we know of this judge? Number one, he didn't fear God. He didn't love God. He didn't revere God. He didn't honor God. He could care less about God, nor God's ways. Number two, he didn't love people. He had no compassion on people. And number three, he loved himself. He was a committed narcissist. So how do we know that? Because when he finally gives justice to this widow, why does he do it? Not because he fears God, not because he loves this widow. Why? Because he loves himself. She was wearing him out. She was a nuisance to him. And so he needed to get his life back in order, and that was to give her justice and get her off his plate. Now, a judge who doesn't operate by God's ways or principles, a judge who doesn't love people or have compassion on people, and a judge who loves himself, that's a bad combination for a person making decisions that affect someone's livelihood. And yet that's what we have here. And in spite of all that, he ends up giving this widow justice. And Jesus concludes by saying in verses six and seven, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? You see, Jesus is using the the common how much more argument here that we see him use in the Gospels. We see the Apostle Paul use in in his letters. How much more? If this unrighteous judge can give this widow justice, how much more can God, who's full of goodness and compassion, bring justice? How do you not lose heart when life is hard? You have to. You have to remember God's character. You have to believe, no matter what, in God's goodness and his compassion. You know, goodness and compassion are similar, but they're different. Notice that this unrighteous judge wasn't good. He wasn't operating according to God's ways or principles, but he also wasn't compassionate. He didn't love people, didn't care about people. And so as we look at these two character traits of God, that he's good and he's compassionate, We see a picture of his character that is absolutely critical to not losing heart when life is hard. First, God is good. You know, when life gets hard, when injustice comes, when desires go unmet, it's easy, maybe not verbally to confess, but deep within the heart to question God's goodness. If you're really honest with yourself, you can give the spiritual answers, but deep down you're going, God, are you for me? Are you against me? Are you, are you my advocate? Are you my accuser? Because when, when life gets hard and things happen, sometimes in, in your heart bubbles up those questions. 
Yet we see Jesus tell us in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 to 13, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will God rain down his goodness? When life is rolling along smoothly, it's very easy to say God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. When life gets hard, is when you realize how easy it is to have a circumstantial belief in God's goodness. I have a friend who recalls when he graduated from college, he was a young professional, he was working, he was single. He lived with a, a, in an apartment, had a roommate, and uh, this roommate struggled with mental illness. My friend came home from work one day, walked into his apartment, and found his roommate dead. He had committed suicide. He went into counseling for obvious reasons, because of what he saw, what he experienced, and he, he says, I'll never forget the time that I was with my counselor, and my counselor said to me, you need to be able to look at what happened to recall what happened, to look at it, not dismiss it, not pretend it didn't happen, not sweep it under the carpet, but look at it and confess that God is good. You see, what he was trying to do was to get my friend to, to understand that no matter what, worst of worst, how critical it is to believe that God is good, that he is good no matter what, that God is good and won't give me a scorpion. That God is good and won't give me a serpent. Now, this is where it gets difficult. Because circumstantially, things come into your life that look like a scorpion, that look like a snake. It doesn't look like something good. But you'll notice that when Jesus taught in Luke 11 and used that how much more argument, what does he say at the end? How much more will God give you what? The Holy Spirit. Romans chapter eight, verse 28. For all, for all that love him, he works what? In all things, he works for the good of those who love. All things? Good, bad, worst. And what's the good? Romans eight twenty nine, Being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? It's the Holy Spirit that he gives us living in us that when life comes, we are convinced at the core because the Spirit lives in us and because the Spirit's renewing us that God is good, that he is good. Second, he's compassionate. Now, where does God's compassion surface in this parable? Look at the end of verse seven. It says, will he delay long over them? The word for delay here is patient. Will he be patient over them? Uh, it's a word that appears in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. There's the word, 
towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter is talking about Jesus' second coming here. And he's saying to those that are, that are, that are concerned about the delay, why hasn't the Lord returned? Why the delay? And Peter says, so that more people can repent and turn to Christ. He, he goes on in verse 15, six verses later, and says, count the patience, there's the word again, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, that word for patience in the Greek, which is the original language that the New Testament was written in, is macrothumia. Macro, large, large distance. Thumia, thumos, anger. A distant anger is what that word means. A distant anger. It's what we we read this morning in Psalm 149, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You all know what the word hair trigger means? A hair trigger is when the trigger on a gun uh, is, is, is set to release at the slightest of pressure. God is a hair trigger from compassion and love. We get that reversed sometimes. We say, oh, God's a hair trigger from anger. You know, he's got a temper, it's gonna flare up. No, no, no. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God is a hair trigger from compassion and love. T.W. Manson, he was a minister and a scholar in the mid-1900s. He tells a story that came from the, the old rabbis. There was a king who was a very compassionate king and he wanted to rule his people with compassion. So he set his army up several miles outside the city that he was over, ruling over. And some of the wise men in the city came to the king and said, why, why do you do that? Because if there's civil disobedience, if, if people rebel, the army can't get here in time. And his reply was, I put the army out there so that when people within my city rebel, by the time the army gets here, they have a chance to come to their senses. They have a chance to turn. God has a distant anger. He has a distant anger so that, as we see in the Old Testament, Israel has time to repent. And not just Israel, but Gentiles, you, me, have time to repent that he's a compassionate God. Consider the patience of the Lord, the distant anger of the Lord as salvation. That God will send Christ to judge. He is going to send Christ back a second time to bring justice, but not until the mercy of his salvation has been satisfied in full and the full number of God's elect come in, the full number of his children come in, that God is compassionate. How do you not lose heart when life is hard? First, you remember God's character, that he's good, that he's compassionate. Second, you remember Jesus' return. Now, what's the situation the widow finds herself in in this parable? 
Verse 3 says, she says, give me justice against my adversary. Israel had a long history with widows. Widows dating all the way back to the Old Testament were always, uh, had a special place in God's heart. In Deuteronomy, we read uh, where God defends the cause of the widow. And then he curses the man that would withhold justice from her. And yet, throughout Israel's history, we see widows mistreated. We see them abused, and, and that's what's happened here. The fact that the, her adversary doesn't show up in front of the judge probably means that this was a money matter, that this widow was financially taken advantage of. She was a victim of injustice. How do you lose heart? Or how do you not lose heart in the face of injustice? I, one pastor tells the story of the bitterness that he faced towards someone that was a trusted person of authority over his little sister. They grew up in a fairly small town and uh, the junior high school, uh, there was a teacher at the junior high school, his name was Max, and, and he was the teacher that everybody loved. He, he cracked jokes, he cut up, he was relational with the kids, he gave, he gave out easy A's. You know, everybody loved Max. And yet this pastor found himself with rage against him. Because one of the things that Max was known for was, was having um, just a close relationship with students that he would have a, and it, it didn't seem like it was anything at the time until people realized that all of these students he really had a close relationship with were young, cute girls. And this pastor's younger sister turned out to be one of his victims. And he writes about the rage, the rage that was in his heart towards this man who took advantage of his little sister. The injustice, and his heart was raised and, and, and to the point of wanting revenge, just evil in his heart coming out for what had happened. Have you ever been a, a victim of injustice? Or, or maybe not if you have personally been a victim of injustice, but, but have you ever been close to a situation, maybe someone you love, it's a victim of injustice. Or even if it's not someone close, something you see in the world around you that is injustice. How do you respond to that? What do you do with it? What do you do when you find anger and bitterness and rage just blossoming in your heart against it? Jesus answers this question by connecting two very important concepts in this parable. Look at verse eight. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus is teaching about his second coming in this parable. He's been doing it at the end of chapter 17 of Luke. This is, a, this is all about his second coming. And what we see here is that Jesus connects his second coming with justice. The word justice appears four times in this passage. It's the root word of, of righteousness. It's will Jesus make things right? Will he bring justice? Will he vindicate? When there's an act of injustice. And the answer is yes, that when Jesus returns, there is not a sin, a wrongdoing, an act of injustice that will not 
that judgment will not be executed on. Now, going back to that story about the pastor, what he realized is when his heart got so full of anger and rage and, and, and wanting revenge that he suddenly, he lost his heart. He lost heart. He became a, a cruel man, I mean, to his family. To, he, was, he was just consumed by this. And he realized God finally revealed that his self-righteous anger, although everyone would say, but it's justifiable. Look what happened. But he realized that his self-righteous anger and rage was just as sinful as this teacher's crime. You see, Jesus is coming back, and there's not one sin that will be laid, that will not be dealt with. And either it's, it's dealt with in Christ, which means nearly 2,000 years ago, judgment was executed on it. If you're in Christ, all of your sin, judgment was executed nearly 2,000 years ago. For those not in Christ, judgment will be executed on them. The point is this, there is not one, even if the courts get it wrong, right? Even if earthly justice doesn't get it right, God will have justice. He says, vengeance is mine. And when you understand that, you understand that Jesus is returning and, and justice will be served. You can let go of your bitterness. You can let go of your anger. You can let go of your rage. And beyond that, you can be freed to forgive. How do you not lose heart in the face of injustice? You understand that Jesus is returning to bring justice. Brings us to our third point. How do you not lose heart when life is hard? First, you remember God's character. Second, you remember Jesus' return. And then third, wait a minute, before I get to three, why does there need to be a three? God's good and compassionate. Jesus is returning to make everything right. We're done. I mean, it's, it's, it's all taken care of. Why would there even be more to it? Well, you'll notice in verse one that Jesus tells this story so that they will not lose heart, but also what? That they'll pray, that you would pray. You say, well, why pray? Jesus is coming back, bringing justice. It's done. Why do I need to pray? You know, in verse eight, when Jesus says, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus doesn't ask that question unless it's possible for you to lose heart, right? That Jesus understands your weakness. You say, why? Because he put on human flesh. He was in the garden of Gethsemane where he was tempted by weakness, tempted as a, as a human being about what he was facing. And so he understands that you're weak and that you can lose heart in the face of, of hardship and injustice and brokenness. And so what we see here is that Jesus says there's a last thing that you need to remember. And that is you need to remember your neediness. Your neediness. This widow in this parable is the picture of vulnerability and helplessness. You know, she doesn't have a husband anymore. She has no one to support her against her adversary, so she comes to this unrighteous judge. She doesn't even have money to pay for a lawyer. 
And so she's asking this unrighteous judge to be her, her lawyer and her judge, that she is absolutely helpless. She's absolutely vulnerable. She's needy. And her neediness, no, drives her to what? Cry out day and night. You say, well, Keith, I, what do I do if I don't, I'm just not really in a needy place in my life? Or I'm not in a place of vulnerability. I'm not in a place of helplessness. And I would say, I, I don't know that you're that self-aware. And let me tell you why, right? And I'm speaking to myself here too. Let me give you a couple examples. See, because neediness has everything to do with control. That we think we're in control. And as long as we're in control, we're not helpless. And yet, we have no control over getting fired from that job. We have no control over the disease or sickness that attacks our body. We have no control over whether that person will accept us. We have no control over the person who veers into our lane on the highway and causes an accident. You see, control is an illusion. It's an illusion. We are vulnerable, needy, helpless people. I mean, think about the woman I opened up with. She goes to work. She's graduated from City Rescue Mission. She's going to a church. She's being discipled. She's, she's learning what it means to walk in Christ. And she's at Golden Corral working behind the dessert counter. And somebody walks in and douses her with flammable liquid and sets her on fire. We're a needy people. We're a vulnerable people. And just like her, this widow's vulnerability drove her to cry out day and night, when you're needy and you recognize your neediness, you're driven, out, you're driven to cry out day and night. But what's the purpose of prayer? What is Jesus highlighting here? Again, you can say God's good and compassionate. Jesus is returning. Why do I need to cry out? There's a great picture of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The apostle Paul has just received revelations and visions from the Lord. These amazing revelations, these amazing visions. And it says to keep Paul from becoming conceited, to keep Paul from believing his own press clippings, to keep Paul from becoming self-reliant and not needy, what does God do? He sends him a thorn in his flesh, which we don't know what it is, but it's some physical condition that was incredibly Painful, uncomfortable for Paul. And what does it do? It drives Paul, reminds him of his neediness. And so what does he do? He cries out day and night. It says he pleads with the Lord three times for God to take it away. And guess what? The Lord answers his prayer, but not how Paul expected. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, what happened as a result of Paul's crying out day and night, pleading? His heart was changed, not the external circumstance. His heart perspective was changed. The thorn was still there. The thorn was still there. Why is Jesus teaching us to pray for his return in this parable? Why is he praying? Why is he teaching us to pray for his return? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
Day and night, he wants us to cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why does he tell us to pray for vindication and for justice? Because when we're crying out for him to come quickly, which we all know, that the return of the Lord is in the sovereign will of the Father, Jesus doesn't even know. God knows that. But when we're praying it, it changes us. It changes our perspective. It resets our priorities. When we're praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It fixes our eyes on the finish line, which affects the way we run the race today. Several weeks ago, uh, Kim and I had planned a fun event for our kids one evening. And we told them in the morning what we were gonna do that evening. And so the anticipation was building all day long. Uh, my son said, Daddy, is it time to go to? And I'd say, not yet, buddy, but we're close. 30 minutes later. Daddy, is it time to go to? No, son, it's only 10.30 in the morning. Not yet but it's getting close. Now, I didn't get frustrated and tell him to stop asking, which was the grace of God, because I've done that plenty of times. But I realized what was happening. The question and answer between son and father was building this anticipation for the event that night. And it was forming and shaping how he was going to live that day in anticipation of the event that night. And it was drawing son and father closer together in a relationship all day long in anticipation of that event. That is why Jesus says, pray for my return day and night and cry out day and night. Do you know the difference between belief and unbelief is patience with God? That, that God's delay in bringing justice, in returning and making things right so that incidences like the Golden Corral and all we see on the news doesn't happen, do you know that God's delay does one of two things? It either gives you evidence that he doesn't care and drives you to unbelief, or as we've seen, it's actually, it, is, it gives you evidence that God is incredibly compassionate. That the army is stationed well outside the city, hoping and waiting for, for rebels, for sinners to turn to him and repent. That the difference between belief and unbelief is how you process God's delay patience. How do you not lose heart when life is hard? Remember God's character. Remember Jesus' return and remember your neediness and let it drive you to cry out day and night. Let's pray. Father, there are those in this congregation this morning who are experiencing the heaviness of life, the brokenness of life, the hardness of life. 
and are struggling honestly with the, the, the losing heart, the becoming discouraged, the, the, the quitting praying because it doesn't work and it's not worth it. Oh, Father, would you please, by your Spirit, convince them again of your compassion and of your goodness that's evidenced by you giving up your son nearly 2,000 years ago and by his imminent return to make things right. And Father, would you create in us a neediness that causes us to cry out day and night for your return, Jesus, that you would come quickly, that we would trust you And that just by praying that regularly in rhythm, it would remind us of what is coming and that our lives here with everything we're going through would be oriented around that truth and that wonderful promise when you return and the bride and the bridegroom are united as one. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.